Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. This is such a well-known passage. We see it on mugs in Christian bookstores. We see it on postcards. We see it posted on Facebook. And it's one of those verses that many, many Christians quote. And for good reason, because this is one of the magnum opuses of Scripture, the charge to the Christian. Therefore, run the race. Run the race that is set before you. We're studying through the book of Hebrews. We just came out of Hebrews chapter 11 with the great portrait gallery of faith, those who ran the race before us. And the big idea of Hebrews 11 really is, without faith, it is impossible to please God. Without faith, it is impossible to please God. You cannot come to God the Father with anything other than faith in His Son, Jesus Christ, the only access point, the only door into the throne room of heaven is via the name of Christ and faith in him and what he has done on the cross. Therefore, faith, faith is the anchor point of everything that we are. It is the anchor point to which we anchor our souls. Without faith, it is impossible to please God. It is not your righteousness. It's not your church attendance. It is faith in Christ. Now coming out of Hebrews 11 and we see those who ran the race of faith well, the admonition comes. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin. Let us run with endurance the race. This is the big idea of today. Hebrews chapter 12 verse 1 and 2. Run the race of faith. Run the race, brothers and sisters. Run the race. Sometimes you run with the wind at your back and sometimes you run with a gale in your face. Sometimes you will run in sunshine and other times you will run in rain. Run the race. Sometimes people cheer you. Sometimes people jeer you. Sometimes people join you and sometimes people malign you but run the race. The race is long. It rises over mountains and descends into valleys. The race is hard. It requires devotion, fortitude, and endurance. But run the race, brothers and sisters. There will be tears of pain. There will be cries of joy. There will be doubts. There will be fears. And temptations to quit will be varied and manifold. Run the race. The prize is worth it. The race is momentary. The rest will be eternal. And the satisfaction, indescribable. Run the race. You are not the first. Others have gone before you. They tell us that the prize is worth the discomfort. Their example shows us that the race can be won. So dear brothers and sisters, run the race. You are not alone. 
The one who set you on this path will never leave you nor forsake you. He who ordained every bend in the road goes before you. The one who made you will sustain you. He is always good and he will never fail you. He will uphold you when you falter. And when death's chasm opens up before you, he will carry you across. So run the race. Run the race. Because at the finish, your heavenly father beckons. At the finish is happiness unending. At the finish is honor indescribable. At the finish is Jesus himself. We will see him face to face. So run the race. Bernard of Cluny wrote, speaking about that finish line, They stand those halls of Zion all jubilant with song and bright with many an angel and all the martyr throng. The prince is ever in them. The daylight is serene. The pastures of the blessed are decked in glorious sheen. And there is the throne of David and there from care released the song of them that triumph, the shout of them that feast, and they who with their leader have conquered in the fight forever and ever are clad in robes of white. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the finisher, the perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Therefore, verse 1. Anytime you see a therefore in Scripture, you need to ask what it's there for. It is connecting us to the previous passage. Therefore, we have those examples of Hebrews chapter 11, this cloud of witnesses, the legacy of the faithful. Now, some have taught that this is the grandstand of heaven and they are cheering us on in the race, but that would not be what this verse is saying and nor is there any support in Scripture to suppose that the saints in heaven are down looking at us, cheering us on. For one thing, it wouldn't be much of a heaven for them for their eyes to be cast down. We're looking at us. What a discouraging sight that must be. Heaven is not being up there and looking down. Heaven is being up there and looking at Jesus face to face. And we have someone who is looking down, who is with us, and it is better than the saints. It is God himself who intercedes for us. Who are these great cloud of witnesses? These are those who have witnessed to God's faithfulness of Hebrews chapter 11, those who've gone before, they have witnessed to God's faithfulness in triumph and in glory, but also in suffering and lament. Two weeks ago, we talked about lament, that the journey of faith is, is a journey of lament. And that being able to lament well is part of the Christian devotion and life. And lament is a, is a prayer and pain that leads to trust, trust in God and his purposes. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, lay aside every weight 
and sin. Now, now to lay aside means to, to, to discard, almost like discarding clothing. It is the, the laying aside of your former identity and the trappings of that identity, that sinful self before you came to know Christ. Lay aside every weight. Now, weights, these are things that, that are not necessarily sinful. They're not wrong. But they are things that, that, that may are freedoms that have become encumbrances. They're things that are allowable, that are tripping you up, that are holding you back. Lay aside the things that are holding you back, those weights, but then also sin, those things that are distinctly wrong. That anti-God sentiment and desire to want to do it yourself. Apart from God. That, that, that identity bound up that wants to claw its way back out. Those respectable sins that we ignore. If you haven't read Jerry Bridges' Respectable Sins, wonderful book, convicting book that also is very challenging and joyful. But whatever holds you from running your total efforts, lay it aside. Now, I'm not saying to lay aside your finiteness. Isn't it, it's, it's so annoying that we're going to spend half, of, a third of our life on our back sleeping. Some of you longer. It's one of those things to, 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 to when I get to heaven, God, if, you, if I didn't have to sleep, I could have gotten so much more done for your name. But you know what sleep is? Our finiteness. It is a daily reminder that this physical body needs recharging and that I am not God and only he is. It is that finiteness that every single day I'm confronted with that by the end of this sermon, I'm going to be hangry. You're saying amen, right? But we have a God who never hungers, who never sleeps, who is always by our side, who always has the full attention of every one of his children. Lay aside the weights and the sins that hold you back. And in the context of your humanity and finiteness, run the race. Run it with endurance. And this is a type of run. It's not a sprint. It's a long-distance endeavor. This is the race that has been set before us. All of us run the race of faith, but the route that God the Father has ordained for you is different than the person sitting next to you. All of us, God has ordained a route, a path, which we are to run. Now, it isn't a human condition to constantly say, God, I don't want this path, I want his path or her path. But you see, God has chosen and elected to glorify himself through you, through a path that he has ordained for you. So run it well. Run the race. Looking to Jesus with your eyes fixed on the prize. He is the prize. He is our founder, the source and foundation of our faith. The perfect example of faith. He who on the cross at that moment of absolute despair, humanly speaking, pushed himself up on the nails on the cross and said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. The ultimate demonstration of faith that at death's door, there was nowhere else he was going to place his soul but in the hands of his father. He ran the race through suffering and death and rejection. Why? For the joy set before him. The joy of obedience to his father, the joy of saving a people. It required for Jesus endurance, shame, but then exaltation, glorification. 
And we look to Jesus because not only is he our example of faith, but he's our hope that even as Christ himself has been exalted, we who are in Christ at the proper time, Ephesians 1 says, we will be seated with him and exalted with him. We shall reign with him and we shall reflect his glory with him. That's our destiny. So run the race. He who endured the cross and shame for each one of us. How many of you watched Queen Elizabeth II's funeral this past week? Anybody? You're like, I'm ashamed. I watched it. Some 30 million Americans watched it. Some 40 million Brits and from around the world, people watched it. I found it a very moving service. It's one of the probably key momentous events of our century. If you actually want an interesting listen, listen to Al Mohler's podcast, The Briefing. And he goes into a three-part state funerals, Queen Elizabeth's funeral. Very, very fascinating. But one thing struck me, an image when the hearse, the casket went by and these streets lined with people throwing roses and bouquets and flowers into the path of the car so that the road was just lined with flowers. It was a very moving sight. But then I was struck by the contrast here is an earthly monarch being honored. And our people are saying, God save the queen. And the king of heaven, Jesus Christ himself, when he came into this world, he walked down a path, but he carried his cross. And as people walked by, people were not throwing flowers. They were hurling insults, saying, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. He endured the cross, despising the shame. And on the other side of the pain was exaltation. It's a hope and a confidence that we look forward to. And, and even, even as I watched the funeral for, from Queen Elizabeth, I was reminded that, okay, there were some theological things I had problems with in the funeral. But I'll tell you one thing, and I'm not going to enter into the debate of whether or not Queen Elizabeth II was a born-again believer. I think there's some evidence, and I would say that there's a likelihood based upon what we see and hear and others who were close to her. But I can tell you this one thing. After watching the funeral, hundreds of millions of people are going to hear the gospel because of what happened. They're going to hear who Christ is and what he did. Because at that Christian funeral, a Christian funeral, unlike the funerals of the world, the Christian funeral is distinctly confident that though we sorrow, we don't sorrow as those who don't have hope, but we sorrow knowing that to be absent the body is to be present with the Lord. And the Archbishop of Canterbury read this, and, I, and again, I just find it, found it quite lovely. It's called the Prayer of Commendation. And as her casket went into the vault, he said, Let us commend to the mercy of God, our Maker and Redeemer, the soul of Elizabeth, our late Queen. Heavenly Father, King of kings and Lord and giver of life, who of thy grace and creation didst form mankind in thine own image, and in thy great love offerest the soul, offer us life, eternal life in Christ Jesus. Claiming the promises of thy most blessed Son, we entrust the soul of Elizabeth, our sister here departed, to thy merciful keeping, in sure and certain hope of the resurrection to eternal life. When Christ shall be all in all, who died and rose again to save us, and now liveth and reigneth with thee and the Holy Spirit in glory forever. Amen. Go forth, O Christian soul, from this world. In the name of God the Father Almighty, who created thee. 
in the name of Jesus Christ, the Son of the living God, who suffered for thee, in the name of the Holy Spirit, who was poured out upon thee and anointed thee, in communion with all the blessed saints and aided by the angels and archangels and all the armies of the heavenly host, may thy portion this day be in peace and thy dwelling in the heavenly Jerusalem. Amen. So exhibited at this moment, this state funeral, is something that goes far deeper than the funeral of Queen Elizabeth, but rather a biblical and a distinctly Christian reality. That we face death with confidence. And because we face death with confidence and we know that Jesus has disarmed death, we can run this race boldly. But how do we run this race well? Four things I want to give you briefly this morning. The key question this morning is, how do we run the race well? Number one, remove the things that weigh you down. Remove the things that weigh you down. Let us lay aside, verse 1, every weight and sin which clings so closely. Now, every runner has to consider the things that they must need over the course of a long-distance race. Their shoes, their clothing, their pack, how much food and water they will carry. They only carry what is needed to help them accomplish the race. A 90-liter hiking pack with his tent and sleeping bag is an allowable item that is helpful in a different context. But for this race, it's not helpful. It's just simply a weight. So that is discarded. Again, that pack is not wrong, but it is not helpful. And the first instruction here has to do with the things that are not sins in and of themselves, but they are weights, distractions, obstacles that are marketed to us at every turn here in the American culture. Things like our home. I praise God for a roof over my head. I praise God for my home. But our home can become a weight. Our hobbies, movies and entertainment, video games, sports, work, business even, our education, and yes, even food. You may say, these are not forbidden, Pastor. You know what? You're right. These are not forbidden. Matter of fact, many of these things are celebrated by God in the Scriptures. But listen very closely, please. These things can become weights that slow and labor our run. And sometimes in the Christian church, we are so consumed whether or not something is allowable, we don't stop to think if it is profitable. Sometimes we engage in debates to the point trying to figure out whether or not something is allowable and we never stop to think if it's actually profitable for our race. Because as soon as something is determined to be allowable, we indulge and we move into it. If we can, we do. If I have the right, I will exercise it. But consider Paul. I want to give you three texts under these subpoints, And the first one beyond Hebrews chapter 12 is 1 Corinthians chapter 9 verse 12. 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 12. Now here's what's going on. The Apostle Paul is arguing for his apostleship, saying, I have the right to work. The right of the worker of the gospel is, yes, I have the right to work and to receive compensation for that. But in the context of Corinth, he refuses that right. Here's what he says. Nevertheless, we have not made use of this right. But we endure anything rather than put an obstacle 
in the way of the gospel of Christ. Let me read that again. We have not made use of this right, but we endure anything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. And often we think, if I have a right, I will exercise it. If it's allowable, then I will go after it in its fullness. But Paul actually denied himself a right that he was due in order that the gospel might go forward uninhibited. Have you ever considered denying yourself a right so that Christ might be glorified through your refusal? Now, I don't know what that looks like for you. That is something through prayer to say, what right might I refuse for the sake of the glory of God? And this is not something that is new with Paul. In Philippians chapter 2, verse 5, what does Paul say? Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who what? Had all the rights of heaven, and yet refused them all, made himself a servant to sinners, so that you and I might come to salvation. Remove the things that weigh you down. And what are those for you? Only you can answer that. You and the Lord together as you seek his face. But let me ask a question. When is the last time you said no to something, not because it was sinful, but rather because it was not helpful in your race of faith? Now you've heard me preach. I think donuts, coffee, and chocolate are graces of God. I love them. But guess what? Out of their blessed allowable context, they quite literally become weights. That slow you down. Lay aside the weights that hinder your run. Carefully think through, how can I serve God more fully? Number two, Practice the daily discipline of untangling yourself from sin. Practice the daily discipline of untangling yourself from sin. So number one, remove the things that weigh you down. Number two, practice the daily discipline of untangling yourself from sin. The common notion in our culture today and in evangelicalism, it was put out even recently in a survey that most Christians in America believe that you enter this world, you are born good. We come into this world without snarls, without tangles, without knots. We are born into this world good. Biblically, theologically, the opposite is true. We come into this world matted, knotted, tangled up with sin. We are born sinful and you are incapable of untangling the mess that is you. People say, you know what? You just need to express yourself and be you. If you express yourself and be you in your sinful state in an act of authenticity, what you will show forth is not honor, but rather the depths of human depravity. That's what authenticity in our sinful state actually brings forth. Now enter the gospel. The gospel of salvation, because we are matted and knotted in our sin and we have no hope to get out of it, Jesus deals with the power and the penalty of sin on the cross. Through his righteousness, he takes care of our sin in our place, dies our death. It's called substitutionary atonement. He atones for our sin. And all who believe in Jesus as their God and Savior are cleansed 
And the Holy Spirit comes to make residence within our lives. And now sanctification begins. Sanctification is the work by which the Holy Spirit, in his grace and power, begins to untangle the mess that we are. And for the first time in our life, we begin to experience freedom and joy. You see, before Christ, we had no ability to untangle the mess ourselves on any level. Once Jesus saves us and the Holy Spirit makes residence within us, now through his work as we abide in him and he fills us and bears fruit, he begins the process of untangling and unmatting the mess. And guess what? It takes time. It takes time. You're not instantly made completely holy, practically. You are positionally before God. But the walk of the Christian life, the race takes time. And it means getting up in the morning and every single day saying, Holy Spirit, help me untangle these emotions and these thoughts and these lusts and these passions that are so bound up within me that want to crawl out of me. I want vengeance. I want vindication. I want that lust. And man, do I want to say that word. But Holy Spirit, untangle me. Kill this sin that remains. You see, obedience is participation with the Holy Spirit to disentangle sin. Disobedience tightens the knot of sin and systematic and prolonged disobedience makes a mess of our lives. Run the race. And if you want to run the race well, lay aside the weights Lay aside the sins and it's not just done once, it's done every single day. Please turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 24. 1 Corinthians 9, verse 24. If you still have your finger in 1 Corinthians 9, just a few verses down. The concept of a race is not unique to the book of Hebrews. The Apostle Paul uses the analogy several different times in his letters. Here in 1 Corinthians 9, verse 24, do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body and I keep it under control. Do you hear that? I discipline my body and I keep it under control because this flesh wants to crawl its way out. And I have to fight the battle. Now, for those of you especially who are younger and you, and you feel the hormones and the emotions and the temptations raging within you, I have good news. Those will never go away <laughs> this side of heaven. But I also have more good news. The more that you practice a life of holiness, the more that those battles and those victories will become more consistent and easier as you learn to find your satisfaction in Jesus and not the things of this world. If, however, you feed them, they will become an insatiable monster that will never be satisfied. Run the race. 
Keep your body under control. Lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. And one of the tragedies is, is the race, those who've run the race well at the beginning or even run the race for much of their life, but because they then walk away and they stop the practice of laying things aside, they are disqualified from being used for God's glory. Now what does this idolatry and temptation look like that Paul is confronting in 1 Corinthians 9? Well, look at chapter 10, verse 6. So just a few verses down. 1 Corinthians 10, 6 through 7. There's a race going on. There's a battle with sin. And uh, he's using the Israelites as an example from the Old Testament of how they fell into idolatry and sin. And then in verse 6 he says, Now these things took place as an example for us that we might not desire evil as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of them were. As it is written, well, before we get to that, do not be idolaters as some of them were. And we ask the question, what does this idolatry look like? Now we finish the verse. The people sat down to eat and drink and they rose up to play. What did idolatry look like? It was not visiting the church of Satan, though that is, of course, idolatry and wrong. You know what idolatry looked like? Making your life about eating, sleeping, drinking, and rising up to play. My goodness, does this sound like our culture or what? Where everything in life is about fun and enjoyment. It was the supplanting of God for the God of satisfying our own desires. Living to eat and play. But then we ask, oh my goodness, okay, running this race, laying aside the weights, how do I do this? How can I handle the temptation? Because the temptations are raging inside of me, maybe you say. How can I handle this temptation? 1 Corinthians 10, verse 13, a few verses down. God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. God is faithful. You're not alone in this race. He will enable you. He will sustain you. He will provide the way of escape so that you can endure it. So what should I do? What should we do then? 1 Corinthians 10, 14, very next verse. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. Here's the answer. Day after day, as you practice the discipline of untangling sin, you condition yourself to flee sin. And you have to condition your mind and your soul because you must understand that because we are born into sin, we are not conditioned to be neutral. We are conditioned by our very being to want sin. So through the power of the Holy Spirit, we condition ourselves to flee idolatry, flee sin, and to pursue Christ. And it's a daily discipline. It's, it's hard work. Now you say, does it really matter that much? Is this battle, does it really matter that much? A little bit of idolatry here and there, a little bit of sin, does it really matter? Verse 21, same chapter. Paul is confronting those who are saying, ah, a little bit of idolatry, a little bit of this. Everybody's doing it, it's not a big deal. What does it matter if we can, here's what Paul says. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. The church was getting caught up in partaking in things, thinking it was not a big deal. And Paul says, when we 
commit acts of idolatry and we supplant anything in front of Christ, it is communion with and participation with the demonic. Sometimes our, my kids have asked and said, why can't we watch this? Why can't we and do this? And here's one of the things. We recognize that there is a spiritual war being waged whereby the demonic wants to enter our house and our minds through the venues of entertainment and other things in this world. And as a parent, it is that hard battle, right? Of trying to determine where we allow our children and then where we protect them because we know that there is an enemy who desires their souls. That's what's at stake. Run the race because it matters. And run a marathon, not a sprint. Number three, run a marathon, not a sprint. A sprint is a significant exertion of energy, but over a relatively short amount of distance. I could never do it, so I'm not demeaning anybody who sprints. But this is a long-distance run. It's a steady plodding. It requires patience. And like I said just a moment ago, it's hard work. Following Jesus is hard work. Doing ministry is hard work. Missions is hard work. Being a businessman and upholding your testimony in the workplace is hard work. Or a businesswoman. Being a mom at home and making sure that the meals and the laundry and everything, it's hard work. Following Jesus, running this race is hard work. Can I get an amen with that? We agree that it's hard work. Run the race and run the race hard. It's hard work now. For 60, 70, 80, 90, maybe 100 years of your lifespan on this earth. And then you have all of eternity to rest. You can work this coming week if you know you have the next month at Hawaii. How many of you have done that? I can make it through. I can. All right. Well, play that out. One week. Small span versus the totality of eternity. We're talking about devotion. We're talking about sacrifice. It's hard. And Paul in 2 Timothy 4, 6 through 8, turn with me there for just a moment. Here he is at the end of his life, 2 Timothy 4, 6 through 8. Paul says, I'm already being poured out as a drink offering. The time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who love his appearing. But it was a hard road for him. This race was not easy. Verse 9 to 18, and I'm just going to paraphrase these next few verses, it was hard. There were betrayals. There were hurts, relational divisions and offenses. Verse 10, Demas, in love with his present world, deserted him. Alexander the coppersmith, who did him great harm. And then when people rose up against Paul, it says in verse 16, no one stood by him. But then he says, verse 17, the Lord stood by me, strengthened me, so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed and the Gentiles might hear it. And so I was rescued from the lion's mouth. 
And the Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. That's his hope. But but the journey? Lament, pain, heartache, betrayal. But Paul didn't run this race alone. Not only did he have the Lord, if you look in verse 19, he then says, but but greet Prisca and Aquila and the household of Onesiphorus. These who are in the race with me and are running the race. We come to church not only because it's the right thing to do, but we come to gather, to remind ourselves to run the race, to fix our eyes on Christ, to stir one another up, to love and good works so that together we finish the cross the finish line. Together we uphold the name of Christ. Together we keep our eyes fixed upon him because number four and finally, he is our prize. So number four, keep your eyes fixed on the prize. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. So key to running this race is not just laying things aside, but it's fixing our eyes on Christ. Over the long haul, fixing our eyes on Christ is not just important, it's critical. Now here I ask a question. I ask this question as I was studying through the text. If looking to Jesus is necessary to run the race well, why then is Jesus absent from most pulpits in America today in favor of politics, productivity, positivity, and prosperity? Why are the books on Christian bookshelves about us instead of about him? And this is, if there was a mirror right here, I wouldn't even look up because I'd feel so convicted looking at my own reflection, okay? Preaching to myself here. How come so little of our praying is spent contemplating the loveliness of Christ? If looking at him is key to running this race well, then why isn't the church doing it? And maybe that's why the church is not running the race well. Because it's about him. You see, Hebrews, Hebrews is a book about fixing our eyes on Jesus. This chapter 12, verse 1 and 2 is not meant to be understood apart from the previous 11 chapters where the author has been saying, we fix our eyes on Jesus. Who is this Jesus? I've just been telling you Hebrews 1 through 11. He is the superior one so that as we run this race, there is no other name under heaven whereby we might be saved and he is higher than all angels. There is nothing in this world that we can face that Jesus cannot take care of. In chapter two, we see his humanity and we're reminded that he understands the race. He ran the race and defeated death for us. In chapter three, we see his worthiness, that he is worthy to assume the role of the great high priest in his priestly role, chapters 4 and 5. In chapter 6, we see his oath of office. His oath of office is that nothing can dismantle that which he has accomplished. And to add to that, in chapter 7, we see that he has the power of an indestructible life. This Jesus, the great high priest, who by his blood on the cross, walks into the Holy of Holies, rends the temple curtain in two, sprinkles his blood on the Ark of the Covenant, and says, based on my blood, now enter into the presence of my Father. And he's indestructible. 
He is unstoppable, which means that our hope and security in that salvation can never be done away with, can never be taken away. Therefore, run the race with confidence and know that he is seated with his father, chapter 8, interceding on our behalf, and that chapter 9, his sacrifice, takes care of you having to run this race for your salvation. He's already run the race for your salvation. Now just run the race out of worship. Chapter 10, his work is final. Nothing needs to be added to it. There's nothing you can bring that can add to Jesus' sacrifice. So brothers and sisters, run the race. Keep your eyes fixed on him who endured the shame of the cross with joy. He who is seated at the right hand of the throne of God as a guarantee and the Holy Spirit who resides within us as a seal that promises that he will uphold us through this race. And one day, one day, there is going to be a coronation of the Son of God and we who are bound up in him in Christ will participate in that coronation and be crowned his children and reign with him for all eternity. Therefore, run a race.